This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. A few years ago, Dr. Matthew Green, a public historian and expert on the story of London, faced a period of sudden personal change. After the ending of his marriage and the death of his father, he became fascinated by another loss, how entire towns and villages in Britain that had thrived for centuries just vanished. He embarked on a journey to track these ghost towns down and understand what these lost people might tell us about how we live today. And he's here with me. Hi, Matthew. Good morning. Your book opens with the story of Dunwich, which is an East Anglian port of about 5,000 people which slipped into the sea due to coastal erosion. What was it like for you walking among kind of the handful of remaining ruins that, that still exist? It's a strangely uplifting place, which you wouldn't expect, because as you say, it was once this thriving port. And then it, it got kind of clawed off the cliff by the wind and the waves and these devastating storms. Um, so you stand on this cliff and stare out and there's this sort of overwhelming sense of emptiness. And it's very hard not to imagine, you know, all, all the churches and the streets and the palaces and sanctuaries all beneath the kind of grey waves of the... North Sea. So that that's incredibly arresting. But what I found more than anything was that this sort of absence had a real kind of presence. Um, and, you know, as Henry James put it, there's a real presence in what's missing. Mm. Um, and it had such an uncanny convergence with what was going on in my own life um, and also what was going on in the world. You know, the sense of everything melting down and changing form, the Brexit, Trump, and then the pandemic. So it was genuinely one of those kind of epiphanic moments when I, I was like, well, this is what I want to write about. And you mentioned Brexit and Trump. That's two things that were going on that are radically changing kind of who we are and what, what has come, gone before and is now. But yeah. one of the sentences that really kind of stood out for me was that you described the end of that settlement as a waterfall of dead men's bones onto the beach below. That sounded to me like a sort of portent or at least, I guess, a, a caution about the existential question of climate change, which is the, really the biggest potential absence for us, isn't it? Did that parallel strike you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad you picked up on that because they they, try, they tried their best to get me to cut that image out. Uh, really? The waterfall wow. of dead men's bones. It really stuck, struck me. I know, stuck. and normally the editors, are, they do know best, but sometimes you just have to fight for it. And I was like, <laughs> that is staying. You know, it's taken me so long to come up with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a work of history, I guess, but it's intended as a awful premonition of the future. So... These places, such as Dunwich and other drowned medieval cities as well, were the victims of extreme weather conditions brought about actually by medieval climate change, which didn't have anything to do with human behavior. So yeah, a few readers have been a bit like, oh, well, all this shows is that it's happened before and we don't need to worry. I was like, no, that's wrong. Um, but basically, the sorts of extreme weather conditions that wiped out these places are becoming more and more prominent because of climate change in our own day, that is man-made. And when you look at places like uh, Skipsea in Yorkshire, sliding into the sea, Fairbourne in Wales, also um, coastal cities, so Portsmouth, 
Hole and, and even London, facing these quite sepulchral incursions of seawater. There's a terrifying chart that shows so much of London's going to be underwater mm. by 2090. It's hard not to read those kind of storms that I try to evoke as this sort of rather uncanny foreshadowing of what we might be in for. Um, it's meant to be a cautionary tale. Um, that's to make it sound incredibly morbid and gloomy, <laughs> but I wanted to so make these places reappear and bring them to life with as much vivid detail and energy as possible because, you know, as long as you keep telling their stories, then they're never going to quite disappear, at least not in the mind. That sense of disappearance is interesting around how we know ourselves in the past as well and what we know about ourselves. I thought that... Um, Section on Scara Bray in Orkney in Scotland, um, which is 5,000 years old, um, and it was only made known to modern people in 1850 after a storm swept away the sands that covered it. I thought that was fascinating to think about, you know, been sitting there under the sands and, and nobody had understood yeah. that, that, the history of that, that area. What does it tell us about how little, I guess, we still know about our own past? You know, talking about the way we're being impacted on by all of these pressures. I think it's um it's quite tantalizing, isn't it? Because as you say, no one had any idea it was there until this storm just swept the the sort of grassy lid off off this dune, disclosing this exquisitely preserved five thousand year old settlement. Um it was built out of Orcadian stone. That that's why we're so lucky. Most most um, settlements built out of timber, but obviously in Orkney there isn't that much timber. So yeah, you really get the sense of who knows what secrets the earth is going to um, disclose or reveal at any given point. And, you know, it, w when we get these survivals, um, on the one hand, it's frustrating because by definition, it's prehistory. There's no written record. Mm. So we're not going to know, you know, what, what, what they thought. And to some extent, the joy is in the guessing, you know, the, the joy is not knowing. But what, what I came away thinking was that, like, who knows what else is going to be turned up at some point which could completely overturn these various sort of um, consensuses about like how people mm. lived. How did you go about choosing which sites you were going to include? Because there are, there's links here between, you know, how climate's acting on on our, our world and uh, hiding and, and revealing places to us. Were there any other kind of factors that you used to choose which made a coherent um, group for your book? Yeah, well, it was tricky because... As I said, there are literally thousands. Um, and if you tried to make it comprehensive, it would have become monotonous. So what I did was to look at causes of decline. So I wanted to look at different ones. So there is the climate change factor. There's also places wiped out by economic shifts, modernization, by plague, um, and also ones that just appealed to me, ones that resonated. What I loved about Donich was that part of the joy of that is, is how it was rediscovered and reinvented and reimagined by artists and writers who were having their reveries on this windswept cliff like years afterwards um, and what it is that ruins actually do to us. Whereas what I liked about Winchelsea, the Sussex port that was destroyed twice by the sea, was just the first-hand evidence of this, this wine-fueled metropolis just being laid low by the sea. That said, uh, I do get quite a lot of angry people coming up at the end of talk saying, sort of, like, why haven't you included my favourite? Now, people become very territorial and to some extent they're, they're blank spaces of the mind, they're canvases on which you, you want to project your own you know, preconceptions. Uh, well, talking of projection, I mean, you mentioned the plague. Yeah. <laughs> We've obviously all just been through the pandemic. We have, yeah, And sadly. the threat of wipeout due to illness is all a bit raw. <laughs> yeah. How was it reflecting on that? I think you wrote the book 
before or just during the pandemic? Uh, the first draft, if, if I put it that way, uh, was before the pandemic, but there was a, quite an extensive second draft of the book, I think, for the better. That was smack bang in the middle of the pandemic. So that must have um, felt very kind of yeah, it almost was, too close, was it? It now? was a little bit uh, close to home because, you know, we we, we didn't know how, much, how long COVID was going to go on for, how much worse it might get, whether a new variant might be even more lethal. So I, I was also kind of, oh, goodness, what if this does become as bad as the thing that um, I'm writing about now? But um, thankfully it didn't. And it, it hasn't so far wiped out any villages, um, as far as I'm aware, whereas the Black Death indirectly led to the disappearance of over 3,000 just in England alone. Mm. And in all your visits, you managed to conjure up the sense of those people whose lives were affected, as you describe whole villages, lost families, and you, you really bring to life the people of those now lost places. How did you find those personal stories sort of appeared to you? Well, I thought um, from a literary perspective, the, the book wouldn't work unless we were invested in these places. And if they were just kind of obscure blotches on a map, then I, I didn't think people would be particularly uh, gripped by it. What I did, as far as I could, would be to find kind of quite extraordinary characters that lived there. In the chapter where the military comes and takes over parts of Norfolk and Suffolk, you know, there's one lady, um, I mean, she was actually a Nazi, but she had this bizarre attachment to the land and she said she was never going to leave it even when like tanks and, and were sort of plowing over her house and she eventually killed herself. Um, the woman in Dunwich, she signed a 500-year lease when the sea was literally on her doorstep. I, I thought it was really important to, to give it a human face, just to sort of emphasise the tragedy of the loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You mentioned both Capelkellen in Wales and also the Norfolk uh, example where there was a requisition by the military. Um, it kind of left me, I suppose, with a troubling sense of the power that authorities have over our lives, that, that one place could be continuously inhabited for centuries and then sort of dispatched a whim by somebody who had the power to make that decision. Um, do you think our places are really our own now? Are we, are we still in this well, not, situation? I, I think we are, yeah. I think it's uh, deeply unsettling because there's this whole very British thing, I suppose, about the sort of inviolability of private property and um, everyone has their castle. But actually, if you look at what happened in um, the Second World War, the lead up to it, a fifth of the entire landmass of Britain was just like that taken over by the military. And if you were unlucky enough to live inside one of these zones, you were evicted. And of course, they said... It's only for the short term you can come back when the emergency has passed. But they never went back. And, and, and these places People are still... forged their lives elsewhere. Once they they had to move them. on, yeah. yeah. They weren't always bitter about it. People did appreciate that it, you know, it was a necessary evil. But nonetheless, they never made it back. And there is that sense that, in fact, you know, that, that there's going to be so many global conflicts, you know, as a result of the climate crisis. So, you know, there could be some new kind of nuclear apocalypse or, or you know, something we haven't even envisaged yet. And the military may well sort of need land to, to train for these threats. Um, the Capelkalen example, 
I don't think something like that would happen again. So that, that's just to be clear for listeners, that yeah. was drowned beneath the reservoir. So that was... That, uh, yeah, that was people living in the one remaining solely Welsh-speaking village in Wales. People just received these letters a couple of days before Christmas 1955, informing them that this engineering project was being looked into by the Corporation of Liverpool. No one really gave it another minute's thought. But then they read the Liverpool Daily Post and says, oh, by the way, we're drowning your village and uh, and the entire valley as well. Precipitating a 10-year struggle ended where it was forced through by English MPs. The design of Liverpool County Council to flood this valley and village just went ahead. I, I I think that would never happen again because there was people remember that. Good. And and also in the, the broader existential threat from, from the climate crisis as well. So, it you know, Everyone takes the existence of their, you know, where they live, their favorite city for granted. And as I say in the coda of the book, you know, it's not a nice thought to sort of imagine it in ruins. Um, and it's a matter of perspective as well, because if you just imagine you were like an Anglo-Saxon Londoner and you were living in Lundenvik, which is what London became where Covent Garden is today, and you looked across at the ghostly shell of what used to be Londinium, where the city is today, no one ever would have thought that was coming back because it was, it, you know, infested with with wolves and Vikings and the whole thing was crumbling. But of course it did. There's also another amazing Anglo-Saxon poem called The Ruin, um, which is about this once great city with amazing steam baths, which had just collapsed and was in, as it puts it memorably, the cold grip of the earth. And that was bath. And then, of course, that, that became the nucleus for future well, for the future bath that's still with mm, us today. Mm. Um, and even those places that have vanished, like Dunwich, um, it still lives on in the mind. And, and I'm sure lots of listeners will be familiar with the saying that if you go to that cliff top and stare out, you're meant to be able to hear the sounds of the 50 submerged churches. There are only actually ever 18, but it's a dramatic effect. <laughs> it will allow a, a sounding from the deep. But, you know, maybe London, when London's underwater, it'll be Hampstead Heath and everyone will be up there staring down at the watery water and trying to listen out for those wren churches. Yeah, Yeah. some pools and seeing if they can see it rearing up. So was there one place that had a kind of more um, significant impact on you, which which stood out to you as you were um, travelling around and thinking about the histories of these shadowlands? They all felt so poignant at the time. And actually with each new place I went to, I was sort of like, well, this is the most affecting. So... When I went to Capel Kalin, that was actually quite early on, even though it's the last chapter, it was quite early on in the book. And hopelessly misjudged how long it was going to take to walk there from um, Bala. I was very uh, sort of assiduous. I didn't want to drive to any of these places because I thought that would be sort of fake somehow. So I, I, I walked or cycled, sailed, obviously, to St Kilda, hitchhiked on one occasion. But when I got to Capel Kalin, like it took about eight hours and I got caught in a thunderstorm and was just staring into this watery graveyard and that was incredibly spooky just to sort of see and imagine what it was like for the inhabitants to have stood on that very same bank watching the waters rising Mm. inundating the houses um another one i went to quite early on was winchelsea and that that was actually obviously i was like scouting out whether the book could have legs at that point because i didn't know whether there were going to be enough of these places Mm. to weave together an alternative history so when I went there, it was before I got the deal, and everything in my life was very fixed and settled, happily married, no, no bereavements, no plagues or anything like that. Um, and it, it, it was amazing, actually, then to return to Winchelsea about four years later when it came out in hardback last year, 
with Claire Balding to do a, a walk with her. And by that stage, ev- everything had been sort of turned up, upside down on its head and felt like a fireball had sort of ripped through my life and through the world as well. But then it, it was really powerful just to sort of return to it after that. And, you know, it, it was still there with its wine cellars and medieval hilltop panoramas and also the 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 journey of Winchester, it, it, it was a city that was destroyed. Old Winchester, it was drowned and then came back. It was built in a different place. It got back on its feet. And I saw some echoes of that in w- what had happened, you know, like the old ways being lost and drowned, but then there being a sort of rebirth. So th- th- that was incredibly cathartic. And it's a strange thing because when, when I embarked upon this, lots of friends were like, you should stop this because this is just like the most morbid <laughs> odyssey. It's like you're in a sort of bad place emotionally. Uh, and is it really going to help you to sort of stare at these like ruined places and um, battered Dig up, dig up other people's traumas. Digging up other people. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and reading about people being sort of propelled backwards off cliffs and see sort um, But actually, funnily enough, like the more the more you meditate upon ruins, it's almost like the less of a ruin you become yourself. Um, it puts things in perspective. You, you see how everything is kind of transitory in some senses. And um, that, that can be quite uplifting. So like Winchelsea had that effect. The finally, for sheer stark drama, you can't really beat St Kilda. I'm sure some listeners will at least have tried to have got It's very hard to actually get there. Even when you're on the boat, you're, you're not sure you're going to make it because it mm. takes about eight hours and there are like storms. And um, But then you, you see these huge rocks that look like they've kind of crash landed from space and and then you reach this island. And, and, and that really draws, you know, it, it focuses the the, the inner mind because like everything is so stark and it's very hard not to imagine the lives of those who had lived there um yeah all these things um sort of go through your head but i would recommend taking a flask of coffee or tea because you can't get that on the there's no and, cafe uh, there's no ca- and after about eight hours no lattes available no yeah i would reckon that was a massive oversight because um, <laughs> you, you just want that more than any because i mean the birds are vicious they actually swoop down at you and you sort of need a bit of caffeine to you know to survive it frankly there's something uplifting, though, about this idea that we can continue whatever, that the human ability to sustain itself is uh, goes on. That's right, yeah. That, and it is a book about resilience as well. You know, so many of these places have vanished. They, they have actually shaped the landscape in which we continue to inhabit today. So places like Donetsch live on in, in the mind and in art, in book like Zebold's Rings of Saturn. Places like Kapil Kalin actually became highly politicised, a sort of rallying call for... Welsh independence that was eventually achieved also as kind of cautionary tales, I think, for what may happen if we don't get our act together in terms of climate change. So um, I wanted to be urgent, vital rallying calls, which said as much about the present and the future as as the past. Well, let's hope we can leave it on the optimistic side, on, on the reasons for positivity, in for spite hope, of yeah. everything, reasons for hope in spite of everything we face. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you. If you'd like to read about these places for yourself, Matthew's book, Shadowlands, A Journey Through Lost Britain, is published by Faber now. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag, hashtag BunkerUp. Uh, Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. And if you like what we do at The Bunker, then you can help keep us going too by backing us on Patreon and get the show without any ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Hannah Fern. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was presented by Hannah Fern. 
Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Proof editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio production by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.